Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Nima Gamsari, co-founder and CEO of Blend, to talk about what lenders are doing to grow in this market and what home buying might look like for Gen Z. Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking to Desmond Smith, Chief Growth Officer at UWM, about SafeCheck. Desmond, how are trigger leads impacting borrowers? So trigger leads have become a very big issue throughout many industries, not just mortgages, but specifically to mortgages, what we've seen happen is a loan officer or a broker will pull credit and sometime within minutes, but uh, definitely within the hour, uh, we've had consumers receive upwards of 40 calls. You know, within a day or two, they may receive hundreds of calls. So that's the reason that UWM created SafeCheck to protect borrowers. Thanks, Desmond. And listeners, you can find out more about SafeCheck at uwm.com. Nima, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. Um, it is it is a challenging market we're in, but we also know that there are some bright spots here, and we also know that there are um, some good things going on. Love to talk to you a little bit uh, about those things. So first off, I would love to know from you, because you sit in a blend really sits in a spot to oversee um, a lot of the market. What do you see lenders doing right now that you feel like is making a difference um, to their growth, to the, you know, to helping them in this market? I mean, look, it's, it is a challenging market. It's a historically challenging market. And I have seen lenders who have been through every type of cycle even struggle in this market. So it's a uniquely challenging market. And we're not immune to that either as blend, right? We work a lot with our customers. And we've always said our success is our customer success. And so I, I think, you know, from, from my vantage point, what I find most interesting is that everyone across the board is doing things around their cost structure. I think that's us. That's our customers making sure that our costs can handle a substantially lower volume and margin environment than historically was there. So I think that's a great, a very positive thing for the market long-term. That means that those companies will be more scalable and have a better sort of long-term prospects to, if, if we're able to all do those things. That's kind of the baseline. That's something that everybody's doing. And then what I see for the ones who are truly forward, from the ones who are truly forward thinking is they're starting to get ahead of the next phase of growth. Um, at, they realize that at some point, the rates are going to come down and rates are going to come down to a point where a lot of people are going to need to refinance again, who have gotten six, seven, eight percent mortgages in the last two years. And so how do we get ahead of that so that we're not in the same situation we were in the last refi boom in a year from now? That's super important. We don't want to be in a situation where we have to turn away business or we have to tell people they have to wait 90 days to get the refinance done to, to lower their rates when they could save a $500,000 a month and it's so important to them. And so I've seen lenders starting to prepare for the next phase of growth, which I think is going to be super important because what we know, it's at just like any cyclical business, there's downturns and there will be a time when it comes back, market will be better and we'll all be better off as a result. And so put the ones who are th- really thinking forward one to two years are the ones that I'm seeing as potentially long-term dominating in the industry. You know, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, there's definitely some people um, that you can tell are being very strategic right now. 
um, in the, and it's going to really become obvious. It's not really obvious right now, but we know that in one to two years, it's going to, we're going to look back and be like, this is what they did. And you can see the results of it. In your own business um, at Blend, you guys have had to make a lot of really hard decisions um, this year and in your own cost structure. How do you, when when you're looking at doing that as the leader, how do you continue to motivate people to want to give their best and and continue and really see the vision when when we're in this kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's tough because, you know, when, when things are going well, people are sort of irrationally exuberant, meaning things were going well. And across the whole market, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, all these companies, you know, they're amazing and they're the perfect company and we're just killing it. And then when things are going in the other direction in the macro and there's huge headwinds, everyone's perspective, everyone starts fighting and everyone's perspective changes and their mindset and their mood shift. And so I'll say it is really tough. I mean, it is really tough in, you know, even in the absence of any cost structure changes, which make it even tougher, I think to your point. And so, a lot of what we have to do is, one, we have to make sure we're continuing to innovate and be a market leader, not just even for our customer's sake, but for our own team member's sake. People want to be on company, be part of companies that are changing things for the better. And so if we're not innovating, if we're not building things that are the frontier of mortgage and banking technology, why would somebody who's super smart want to be a part of that team? So I think, one, continuing to innovate. Two, there's nothing more motivating than customers who love us and who send us positive notes and continue to do more with us. And so the fact that we've doubled down on our customers in this time, like all the changes that we've made at Blend have been around our kind of core cost structure, but never anything that's customer facing. Or when we've made small customer change, um, facing changes that you know made by mistake, we've undone it really quickly. We want to make sure that our customers love us. And when our customers continue to love us, which they do. And actually, the, the amount of market share we've gained for our customers, the amount of new products we've signed with them has been amazing. Um, obviously, not enough to counter an 80% mortgage, mortgage market decline. But the fact that they continue to rely on us is so motivating to the team. Like We have customers come in our monthly all-hands as a company, and they, the customers come and just tell their story from their vantage point. It's, be, it's better to hear it from them than from me. I mean, obviously, I'm not making stuff up, but you know, it's always better to hear things from the source. And so, so that's been super helpful. I think those two things, like making sure we're on the frontier of innovation and making sure our customers love us. If we have those two things, we're going to be fine forever and our customers know it and our team members will know it as well. And so I think if we do those th- two things and continue to do that, we've done historically, uh, the team will be as motivated. Do you, th- you know, when you look back at say even a year ago from now, how do you feel like you've changed as a leader or, or what have you learned that maybe you wouldn't have known this time last year? You know, operating a company in a market where you have basically unlimited resources, no scarcity. Um, and I, I'm not, I, it's not actually true. We didn't have unlimited resources to blend, but it just like there wasn't as much scarcity. There wasn't any scarcity compared to what there is now in terms of um, capital, co- cost of capital is super high. The ability to, um, if we needed to raise money for something, you know, given our stock price, we, we'd have to raise money at a different, uh, a different amount of uh, dilution to the company. And so everything becomes really an ROI discussion now, where it's like, if we're going to do something that, is something above and beyond core operating of our business. We have to make sure the ROI is there for our customers and that'll, that'll translate to ROI for us. 
That's by the way, that's a simple formula that I use. Every ten dollars of value that I create for our, we create for our customers of blend, we can probably capture one dollar of that back to blend. You know, like if, if we're having a fair exchange of value with our customers, or maybe two dollars if they're being really generous. And so we always want them to win more than us, but we want to win alongside them. Um, and so I didn't have that lens around ROI eighteen months ago or a year ago, and now everything that I think about or do has that as the centerpiece. I think about how do we make sure that every dollar that we're spending is being spent for the highest and best possible thing we can do for our customers. What's the thing that will drive the most value for them that will get adopted the most? That's another factor is, is like um, building things that could create value is is great. But the best thing is to build things that do actually create. There are so many times in this industry, you hear stories of technologies that seem amazing or sound amazing or look amazing on paper, but then they don't get the adoption, whether it's because people don't want to change behavior or because um, it's too expensive to change a process or whatever it may be for a lender. And adoption, if you could create something that creates a ton of value, but if nobody uses it, it doesn't matter. And so those two things have become super important. I mean, I will say I have just become so much more introspective around those kinds of things than I was a year ago. In retrospect, I should have been doing that all along. And the fact that I wasn't was a failure on my part, but something that I have now probably learned trial by fire. I do think it's one of those things, I mean, as in every part of life, I mean, until you go through it, you don't know what that looks like. Well, let's talk about one of the things that you guys um, reacted to what your customers needed. So this year, we've seen a lot of attention on uh, uh, trigger leads. Um, people are really, you know, consumers are upset, their legislators are upset, you know, lenders are trying to figure out, you know, they, they want leads, they don't want to irritate customers, they don't want them to, you know, get 400 calls in three days or whatever after they've, you know, uh, done a credit pull. There's there's also um, the credit score fees have gone up, right? Um, we have buy merge instead of try merge, we have all these things going on. So tell me about um, Blend and you rolled out a um, soft credit pull function for lenders and kind of how that fits into what you saw lenders struggling with there. Yeah, I mean, ironically, that one was one that we rolled out because we just felt it was the right way for lenders to save money and the best way for lenders to treat their customers, consumers, where you don't affect their credit score, they're not getting hit by all these calls, and they don't, um, and it doesn't cost as much for the lenders to do it for people who are just shopping around. And so it seemed like the right thing to do before this whole trigger lead thing exploded. And, and it makes sense, right? The consumers don't want those calls. Lenders don't want to pay $40 or $80 for a tri-merge credit bureau for somebody who's just shopping. And we're seeing conversion rates go down because there's no inventory on the market. Like all these things add up. And so we started building that because it's right. Every modern fintech that you see that's direct to consumer, one of the first steps in their process is to do a soft credit check. Because it's good for the consumer and it's good for them. Saves the money, good for the consumer. The fact that the mortgage industry hadn't adopted that at scale was an interesting phenomenon that I can't fully explain. And so we started rolling that out um, really almost a year ago. And then it was just so important to our customers that we doubled down on it. We built it into not only the the automated self-serve flow for consumers, but then the LO web, you know, the toolkit for the LOs, which we call LO toolkit. We built in the LO mobile app, which is the native mobile app for LOs. And it's something that universally everyone loves. The only people who don't like it are the people who take and use trigger leads to steal customers away from our customers. It is the only people who don't love it. They're the ones who benefit from it. Consumers don't benefit from uh, tri-merge credit pulls. 
lenders don't benefit from it until later in the process. Of course, you need to close. And so it ends up becoming a win and obviously blend wins because we want to have our customers retain their customers. It's good for us if they do that. And so um, that's been a fascinating one that, uh, and we think there's more opportunities like that in the mortgage process. Uh, uh, so, so for example, uh, uh, just to expand a little bit forward, um, you know, there's also a similar opportunity to get somebody into a process where before you go and take them down a detailed underwriting path, um, we, we're introducing this concept of soft income pull, where we can do an income verification based on whether it's asset data or third-party connections we have. Or we've negotiated agreements around the, 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 the upfront cost of that, where if you know, that loan doesn't close, the lender doesn't get charged um, or nearly as much, just like a soft credit. And so there's a world where a consumer could show up and you could have their without ever leaving blend, you could have their full credit profile with a soft credit, have their income profile with a soft income and have their assets to the blend assets done before it even touches your underwriting process and see, is this person worth actually putting through a process or do we already know they're going to get rejected? Like why take them down that path? Why hurt the consumer by taking them all the way down that path and then spend a whole bunch of your time and money and your underwriting team's bandwidth, which underwriters are super expensive resources when you already knew they were going to get rejected up front. And so help the consumer out by not putting them through that. Don't put any hard credit on them. Don't charge them any fees. Don't charge them an application fee. Um, and so I think there's more opportunities like that that are coming where soft credit's sort of the early canary in the coal mine of other things that can be done to make the process better for, for lenders and consumers. So I know that FHFA just had their tech sprint and I got to talk to Jason Cave. I've talked to him a couple times uh, before that. I'm going to talk to some people who were there uh, about what they learned, but I thought it was so interesting and so encouraging that the FHFA was taking the initiative right with industry to understand what can be done that's not being done. What are, what are the things that lenders aren't taking advantage of right now that are already available? And then what's the next thing that they could do to really make a difference? I would love to get your opinion about that. Like when, when you look at what's already available that, you know, we, you just said something about adoption, right? It's, there's so many things out there. And you know, what Jason Cave is trying to figure out is like, why is it, why are there so many things still not adopted when, when they're out there? So would love to ask you that. I, I mean, this is your bread and butter, right? You want people to adopt. So what do you think it, what do you think the holdup is? Let's just start with the, what the playground of things that are possible to adopt right now are. There's three or four different kinds of income verification. There's assets derived income. There's um, income from instant third-party sources. There's income from pay stubs. There's, there's asset verification, which requires a provider that sends a link out to a consumer to log into their bank account, to connect the bank data, to do asset verification for things like um, the, the certainty programs from the, the GSEs. There's uh, attorney opinion letters on the title side. There's also this concept of instant title. There's work being done for appraisal waivers and, and property inspection waivers on the um, appraisal side. There's soft credit uh, that and, and an ability in some cases to run AUS with soft credit that's being explored. There are so many, po- I guess the, the reason I named all those things, imagine if you're a lender just for a second here. And you have these 50 things you have to do. And meanwhile, you're doing things manually in the back office or the, the fulfillment side. And you have this pretty complex process that you need to get right because you don't want to have repurchases. Repurchases are another um, 
hot topic in the industry right now. I'm sure you've heard quite a bit about that. But you don't want to have repurchases. You want to make sure your loans are saleable. And you've got these 50 different technologies you have to integrate. How are you going to do it? I'm just curious, like what's the, what is the, ta- what is the tangible way to not just integrate it into your LOS or get the data in, how are you going to integrate into your process? And so I'll just talk, I'll give one case study around what, how we've gotten adoption of something, which is the asset verification, which also help, could help with things like verifying income from the asset data and also how I've gotten um, uh, income verification to be so widely adopted at our customers more so than in the market more broadly. Actually, we're, we're a multiple above the market more broadly on the adoption of those things. And same with soft credit. And these are all along the same line, which is in Blend, we don't just give you the pieces to the puzzle and say, here's all the tools, go do your loans. And here, we're going to keep adding tools to the toolkit. At the right point in the process, when the customer needs to provide their asset information, on screen, in the middle of their flow, we say, hey, connect, either connect or manually upload your documents for this. If you connect, we'll pull your information for you and verify digitally. If you upload your documents, somebody will have to review it. And in that flow, right there, the consumer will, more than half the time, opt in to just say, yeah, I'll connect my bank accounts. They're not getting an email three days later that somebody had to manually push a button at the lender to do. And so we get a massive adoption. I don't know the exact numbers on this, but I think we're Probably, even though we're not 50% of the industry, we're like 20-ish percent market share, 23% market share in the industry. We're, we're the, probably the majority of the asset verifications in the industry because it's an integrated part of the flow. Same with income. Income is run automatically right when the consumer gets that income screen. It pre-fills the income screen using that soft income capability that I, that I mentioned to allow for the consumer to verify it, ensure that we pulled the right income, go with the process. It's not some button somebody has to push in the middle or back office. And so again, I think I think a lot of the challenges are when people are given fifty different tools to integrate, they don't. It's almost impossible to integrate them. Like that's a lot of what Blend does is we build this sort of you know sort of end to end process that allows for lenders to take advantage of all these things out of the box, and then of course give them flexibility with things like Blend Builder, which you know I'm happy to talk about separately, so they can configure the workflow to change to their needs as well. But if, if you just give them a bunch of tools and say, go integrate these things, I don't believe it will get widespread adoption. If you give them a pre-thought out, very well thought out process that is fully integrated, it will drive a lot more adoption. And that we've done the latter and I think that's helped us a lot. Do you feel like though, um, if you think about you know that for, for a certain size of lender, it might be really hard to have that sort of pre-built like all in one thing. Like they may, they may only be able to do one thing at a time. So do you feel like that, you know, that's just another challenge that smaller lenders have? No, actually, I, I actually think in, in that case, the inverse is almost true. It's the bigger ones that we work with who are like, Hey, look, I like the way you've integrated income into this flow, but we needed a different way. Um, I'll try to not, I don't want to name any customer names, but we have that happen all the time. And we're like, okay, great. There's a configuration point. You can change that. It's the smaller ones who want us to say, here is the box. Let's stay in the box. And Blend will keep innovating on the box and improving the box. And then giving them like the right tools around the edges to give their teams what they want. But they're the ones who actually need us to do that. In fact, like they, they need us to give them an end-to-end process because if we don't do that, then they have to find a way to piece it together and it ends up with an email going out to the customer there and somebody manually pushing a button here. 
it still works, but it's a very disjointed process. Won't get the same adoption, won't get the same efficiency for them. And so, yeah, it's, it definitely is not um, not the easiest thing to get adoption. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money to build from get gets adoption, but um, it's worth it. I mean, the value is there in the end. The, the lenders will be able to do loans cheaper, and customers will have a better experience. And so everyone sort of wins. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people about AI and and what does AI look like um, in in very practical terms as far as like how it's helping people right now, right? I, I'm sure many of your solutions um, are actually using AI. It depends on how you want to define that, but I'm sure for years they've been doing that. But from your perspective, what are some things right now that are really impacting in a, in a good way people's workflows or their um, you know, the bottom line, the revenues because of AI at lenders specifically? I think the short-term value of a lot of the AI that I've seen in the market is around customer service. Uh, like kind of how do you build a real-time agent that can help customer service? That's one that I hear a lot. People are using it for document processing, which allows them to, you know, read the data off the documents and find the anomalies and process the documents, put the data in the right data field. And it's actually super powerful for those kinds of things. Um, I think that the, the opportunity for AI is to fundamentally transform how the lender offers its products to its customers, meaning or how it engages with its customers who haven't yet actually engaged with them in any other way. And I mean, the, the beautiful thing about the generative AI that's come out recently is that it can understand the intent of what a consumer is trying to do. Um, that's a beautiful thing. Understanding the intent of what someone's trying to do automatically. Yeah, by the way, just so, just so people understand, the way chatbots used to work is you would d- manually define the intent of like 10 different intents. Like, oh, he intends to return this package or he would like to understand the return policy or he wants to open a new account or he wants to um, delete his data or whatever it is. And, and they would have to manually define the intents. They would have to create manual steps in the workflow of like, okay, if they want to close their account, we need to get this information from them. And then once we get that information, send it to this data source. And so it, it created this thing where you had to go and manually define all those intents. Now, all of a sudden, with generative AI, you can understand the intent of the consumer without having a human involved. And, and that's so powerful. That's so crazy. It's so crazy to me that that's, that's so it's like, and, and then on top of that, it can then structure a response based on all the information and tools available to it. And I think that just fundamentally changes how um, lenders and even LOs should think about engaging with their customers, which is like 95% of the situations that an LO deals with um, may be, things that are the same kinds of questions they get every all day, every day. So if I'm an LO and I'm at, you know, my, my customer wants to know if they can get pre-approved for this house or they want a pre-approval letter for this house or they, or the realtor wants that pre-approval letter for that house, or they want to know if they'll, um, they're approved or how much monthly payment they'll save if they refi or how much cash out they'd be eligible for. Like there's like simple kinds of questions that you as an LO have for a consumer, get from a consumer on a day-to-day basis. And like that part of your job, like that that part of your job, it's kind of like how coders now they're getting super powered. Where a lot of like eighty percent of what or ninety five percent of what code, like I'm in a software engineer, like a lot of what we did was like debugging, formatting things that are sort of not the core hard problem solving part 
which is like solving a really hard systems or algorithmic problem. It was putting the things into a format that the system could understand. And, um, and then AI kind of made that a lot easier with Copilot. And so it's the same con, I mean, it's the same concept. It's like there's a lot of the simple, I don't, I don't know, simple, because actually some of these answers, like how much money can I afford to buy a home for, is a complex answer to the analysis. But they get that question all day, every day. So how do we supercharge the LL? I think that will fundamentally change and will allow the LOs to really serve their customers, like, I mean, 10 times as efficiently as they did before. Maybe a hundred times. I, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly, but it, it's just like that's where there's a lot of opportunity. I think. I love that. You know, we talk a lot about you know LOs. Uh, it's a people business at the end of it, right? If you're an LO, I mean, you're a salesman. You are also hopefully a, an advisor. You are. Um, you might have to hold someone's hand. You might be. You know, this is the single largest purchase most people will ever uh, own. This is the biggest asset they're going to have. So you know, they want that that human touch, even though they want the human to be informed by like what you're saying, like they, they would love for the, that human to know all these things. They have all the knowledge, but at the end they need the emotion and the connection with the human. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think actually like that is something where, and not only that, by the way, it's kind of an interesting thing, phenomenon where on the one hand, the, the consumer wants the LO's advice. And on the other hand, the lender has to give accurate information out to the consumer. And so they can't just have a brainless AI that's trying to interpret the intent. And so you kind of have this perfect phenomenon where consumers want to work with an LO or at least have an LO there as a, as somebody they're working with, they could work with. And LOs are a perfect person to like take the, all the work output that's being done for them instead of by some, you know, maybe some like administrative partner they have being done by themselves or by, by done by the system, it's just actually kind of a perfect world where they get some, some work that they can um, look at, review, update, change, and tweak versus having to do everything from scratch and then send it out to the consumer. I think there's a real opportunity there for, um, for some ways that we, the ways of which LOs interact with consumers can be, I think, fundamentally better. Um, and consumers interact with lenders can be fundamentally better as a result of AI. But nobody's done it yet. You know, we spent um, in the mortgage industry, I remember like um, 10 years ago, people were like, uh, they were anxious about millennials. Are they going to want to buy homes? How are they going to want to buy homes? You know, how are we going to serve millennials? They're so different. They're such a different generation, all those kind of things. Do you guys spend a lot of time thinking about the next generation, that Gen Z and thinking, you know, how are they going to approach it? Do you feel like they're they're different? I mean, at your level, when you're 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 building things for, for the future for lenders. Like, what do you think about Gen Z? What do you, how are you preparing for that? Uh, well, one, I think actually one interesting thing about Gen Z is they are, I don't know if the stat is true. I'm curious if you, you've got the stat in a lot of ways, they're like harder working and more financially savvy than millennials. I'm a millennial. So I, this is not me. I'm not talking about, I've heard that they're a harder working, more financially savvy generation than millennials. And I think we have this rap for being this this like lazy generation who you know, it's, and I, I don't know if all that's true. But what I will say about um, the Gen Zers, I, I I mean, I do think they're pretty savvy, and I think that they'll enter the housing market when the time is right. Um, it's probably too early for most of them. I think Gen Z would probably be like twenty seven, twenty eight would be the, the oldest Gen Gen Zer. Is that right? Um, so. 
probably early in their home buying life cycle. And one thing that's interesting is when, when by the time Gen Z's become mass home buyers, the data economy will have, will have been a lot more mature. And by that, I mean the ability for some of the things that I talked about earlier around credit and income and, and assets and this, the tools required to approve somebody. Um, I believe that those will be essentially ubiquitous at that point. And the people who are, and this is like call it like five, five to 10 years from now when they're really mass buying properties. Um, I don't know if you agree with that timeline, but that's just, I'm just basing it off the ages. So correct me if I'm wrong again, but, but I think the data economy will be ubiquitous. And so what I think that means for Gen Z's is that they will walk around with their, you know, their mobile phones and maybe their Apple VR headsets or whatever's the latest and greatest thing in 2030. And they will be, they'll be walking around with sort of permanent in their pocket, maybe in their Apple wallet, Here's your buying power for a home from their financial institution, whether it's a mortgage lender or it's a bank or a credit union, a permanent, here's your mortgage approval. Whenever you're ready to, whenever you find a home, show this to the realtor and that'll be used to make an offer. Um, and that will always be updated with real-time data. So they'll always know it's accurate, real-time income, assets, credit, all the things I mentioned. And so that will allow them to not just be financially savvy, but know exactly what the system can do for them at any point in time. Not by that's not just with mortgage. They'll know their their unsecured credit worthiness from their bank. They'll know what their just like they know their credit card limit today. They'll know what they could get approved for for a car loan. They'll know how much they could lower their monthly payments on a mortgage or their car in real time. Prepayment speeds I think will dramatically um, uh, be more rent even more rate sensitive than they are now on mortgages because people will be able to find out what they're approved for instantly and carried around in their pocket. Um, and so I think that that generation will have a higher rate of home ownership than any generation in history, assuming some supply problems are solved between now and 2030. And we'll have better financial success because they will fundamentally be able to understand the financial system better than any generation in history. And it's not because they're you know necessarily as financially savvy as I said, but it's just, we're going to make it so easy for them to understand it. So that's what I believe. I mean, look, we'll see in seven years if I'm right or not, but I think that's where the world's sort of trending. I'll have you back in seven years and ask you and be like, okay, here's, here's what we see. No, I, I think, I think you're spot on on that, on the timing as well. Okay. Well, my last question for you and Nima, I really appreciate you being on. My last question is like, what motivates you every day? What motivates you to, to get up and, and do the best job you can? You know, this, okay. I'll tell you the things that I really enjoy doing. And these are probably the same things that motivate me. The things that give me the most positive energy are talking to and dreaming up the future with some of our biggest customers. And actually all our customers. I work with probably, I probably talk to in any given month, a hundred of our 300-ish customers in some form or another. Like I try to just be on the phone with them as much as I can, a few of them a day. And that just gives me so much energy because it allows them, you know, to make sure that they understand what's going through my head, but it'll maybe selfishly, it allows me to understand what's going through their head, which helps me shape the future of blend. And it's not always immediate and direct response, but it's always something that I take in and, and figure out how we can weave back into blend. So that's the first thing that gives me a lot of energy. And the second thing that gives me a lot of energy 
is helping bring to life um, some of the new technologies that you know some of the things we talked about on this on this podcast. You know, how do we bring to life you know this sort of living approval that's sitting in somebody's Apple wallet? How do we bring to life an AI that can help supercharge the loan process for 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 LOs? How do we bring to life the ability for when the next refi boom comes for a lender to be able to serve those customers extremely in an extremely streamlined way. Like those are the types of things. Those are some examples of like three things that just really excite me. They're fun to work on. They're aligned with our customers' long-term vision based on my conversations with them. And I don't, I fundamentally believe, especially now because no one, it seems like everyone turned their back on the mortgage industry, investors, um, new startups, uh, turn their back on the mortgage industry because times are bad. Um, and so if we don't do it, I'm like, who will? Like nobody, nobody cares about this industry in the same way that, that I do. And that, you know, maybe you do and some others on, uh, you know, that, that, that I engage with on a weekly or monthly basis. And so we just got to make those things happen. And that really excites me. Nima, thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for sitting down. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.